welcome. Tonight we're back in Systematic Theology, session 55, continuing on the series of redemption in Christ. What redemption is, once again, it's God's project of choosing a people for himself and then accomplishing their redemption from sin and then applying that redemption to those he chose before the foundation of the world. Once again, we've been studying redemption using the structure of the Ordo Salutis, or the Order of Salvation, that's in your notes there for reference. And we've come all the way to step 3A in the Order of Salvation, which is justification, which we've been studying the last few sessions. This doctrine is so very important to get right, because the doctrine of justification is a big part of what separates true religion from the rest of the world's religions and from offshoots like Mormonism and Roman Catholicism. The 17th century Puritan preacher Thomas Watson wrote this about how critical the doctrine of justification is. He wrote, justification is the very hinge and pillar of Christianity. An error about justification is dangerous, like a defect in a foundation. Justification by Christ is a spring of the water of life. To have the poison of corrupt doctrine cast into this spring is damnable. And when we talk about justification, what do we mean by that? And I've been giving this definition from the 16th century Reformed theologian Amandus Polanus, which I think is to the point, and I'll quote him here, the free justification of man the sinner before God is the benefit of God by which he declares man by nature wicked, but by grace truly believing, righteous and free from eternal condemnation, as well as a sharer of eternal life through the obedience of Jesus Christ, our mediator and savior alone. And that quote from Polanus speaks of the foundation of our justification, which is Christ's obedience. Christ in his incarnation was the lawgiver who condescended to being born under the law. In other words, he willingly submitted for our sake to the legal obligation to completely fulfill the law in every respect with a complete zeal. Christ also willingly obeyed the Father in his incarnation by suffering for us. Now, in the previous study, we looked at this twofold obedience of Christ. This twofold obedience is called the active obedience of Christ and the passive obedience of Christ. In the last study, we looked at the active obedience of Christ. Christ completely fulfilled the law in all of its precepts, all of its requirements. He completely fulfilled the will of the Father during his earthly walk. Now we come to the passive obedience of Christ. The passive obedience of Christ is his willing submission to suffering. His willing submission to suffering. This was a suffering we deserved ourselves for our sins. But for his people, Christ took that suffering for us. We owed a debt to God under the law for our breaking the law. That debt was to suffer eternal death. For the elect, Christ suffered during his life. And as the culmination of suffering, he went to the cross. Now, this term, passive obedience, doesn't mean that Christ was passive in the sense that there was no effort that he exerted. The word passive comes from the Latin word passio, which means suffering. And when we talk about 
like the Passion of the Christ or the Passion Week when Easter falls. The Passion refers to Christ's suffering. It comes from that Latin word, passio. Christ's active and passive obedience are, in a sense, two sides of the same coin. Christ rendered a singular obedience to the Father during his earthly walk. But that singular obedience has those two aspects, his active obedience in fulfilling the law and his passive obedience in taking the suffering due to us for our sins. So tonight, we're going to take a look at the passive obedience of Christ, his willing obedience to suffer for us. And I'm going to start with a reading from Isaiah, which is a little long, but I want to use it as a framework to show how Christ suffered. And I'm going to read from Isaiah chapter 53, which is the prophecy of the suffering servant. Isaiah 53. I'll begin in verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. I think this passage... This prophecy of Christ as the suffering servant can be used as a framework to look at the various aspects of his suffering. First, we'll go to verse 1. It says this, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Part of the suffering of Christ was that his own people, the Jews, largely did not believe in him. This verse is quoted in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, and it says this in John 12, verses 37 and 38. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. 
so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Christ had just finished telling them, while you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. This verse in Isaiah was fulfilled with, where the question was asked, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Jesus suffered this anguish, that although he was light and came to bring light, his own did not receive him or believe him. And this was in the face of great signs being given to them. Now back to the passage in Isaiah chapter 53. In verse 2, it says this about his humility and his condescension in taking human nature alongside his divine nature. Verse 2 says, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. When it says here that he grew up like a root out of dry ground, it points to the fact that he was born into a family that had no fame. His obscurity until the start of his public ministry was reflected in the obscurity of his hometown, Nazareth. Even the disciple Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? One commentator wrote this about the reputation of Nazareth. The Jews of Jerusalem despised Galilee and scornfully rejected the Galilean teacher, while the rest of Galilee seems to have despised Nazareth. And we get to verse 3. It says he was a man of sorrows. We rightly think of the great suffering of Jesus as the cross, but his suffering extended throughout his earthly walk. He was, throughout his earthly walk, a man of sorrows. The intensity of his suffering increased as the week of his crucifixion came, then the Garden of Gethsemane, then the cross. Christ's suffering, it was a suffering in both body and soul. As Jesus began his great suffering that led to the cross, as he entered the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus revealed to Peter, James, and John the degree of suffering he was enduring in his soul. I'll read from Matthew chapter 26, verses 37 and 38. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Now, the suffering of Christ in his body is obvious to us when we look at the cross. But Christ's suffering was in both his body and his soul. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. You know what? When we suffer in this life, we can't say it's always a willing suffering. You have to be dragged kicking and screaming into suffering for us. But Jesus entered into suffering willingly. For us, there was a determination in Jesus to fulfill his passive obedience. Now, I'm going to be in Isaiah chapter 50 next. Isaiah chapter 50. In that chapter, we're given a prophecy of the Messiah and his suffering. Isaiah chapter 50, I'll read verses 6 and 7. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. 
I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. I have set my face like a flint. Matthew Henry wrote this about Christ setting his face like flint in his ministry of obedience in suffering. He wrote, Christ did so. He went on in his work as mediator with unshaken constancy and undaunted resolution. He did not fail nor was discouraged. Christ not only had a zeal for fulfilling the law in his active obedience, we went over that last time, a zeal in his active obedience, but he set his face like flint to carry out his passive obedience. Once again, this term, passive obedience, it doesn't mean that he was passive. The word passive in this case means suffering. And he was very active in his work of suffering on our behalf. In verse 6, the Messiah states, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Jesus was very active in his obedient suffering. It says, I gave. Jesus made the active and obedient decision to go forward in the suffering appointed to him. Then we get to verse 7. It says that the Messiah set his face like flint to obey in his suffering. Set his face like flint to obey in suffering. That passage in Isaiah, where it speaks of Christ setting his face like flint toward his work of obedient suffering, reminded me of the passage that I'll read next in the Gospel of Luke. I'll be in Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 53. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. His face was set toward Jerusalem. The passage links Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection and ascension with his determination to go to Jerusalem. Christ knew what his mission was in Jerusalem. He knew that his passive obedience required suffering rejection by the Jews, the suffering at the Garden of Gethsemane, the suffering of the cross. But he didn't run from this. In his passive obedience, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. One commentator says this phrase, set his face, is a metaphor of determination. You might remember that when we looked before at Christ's active obedience, his fulfillment of the law, I used the term zeal. Christ had a zeal for the law. In his passive obedience, his obedience to complete his mission of suffering, I like the similar word determination. Christ had a zeal to fulfill the law and a determination to drink the cup of suffering. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face like flint to go to the cross. The modern Reformed theologian J.V. Fesco phrases this lifelong suffering of Christ in this way. He wrote, 
Christ's suffering did not begin at his crucifixion, but began the moment of his incarnation, and is especially evident in his ministry as he ate and drank with the poor, outcast sinners, and where he met resistance, persecution, and ridicule from the religious leaders in his own family, and it culminated in his crucifixion. The suffering of Christ during his earthly walk was on a kind of continuum, if you will, escalating until we come to the cross itself. This is where the passio, the suffering of Christ, comes to what theologians call the passio magna. Once again, passio means suffering, and the word magna, well, that one's probably obvious. It means great. The passio magna is the great suffering. I'll be in Philippians chapter 2 next. Here Paul is writing of the humility of Christ as the suffering servant, and I'll be in chapter 2 of Philippians, verses 5 to 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, though who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Part of the suffering of Christ in the incarnation was that he emptied himself, which means that he went from the display of infinite divine glory to veiling that glory and making himself of no reputation. At his temptation in the wilderness, he didn't seize upon divine prerogative with some sort of self-willed exercise of power. He remained obedient to the Father in his ongoing suffering. His suffering obedience finally culminated in the central event of all of history, the Passio Magna, when he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The theologian Burkhoff wrote of this ongoing suffering. He put it this way. He suffered from the repeated assaults of Satan, from the hatred and unbelief of his own people, and from the persecution of his enemies. His suffering was consecrated suffering, increasing in severity as he approached the end. The suffering that began in the incarnation finally reached its climax in the Passio Magna at the end of his life. Then all the wrath of God against sin bore down upon him. The Heidelberg Catechism asked the question, what do you understand by the words, he suffered? And it answers, that he, all the time that he lived on earth, but especially at the end of his life, sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sins of all mankind. In speaking of the suffering of Christ throughout his life on earth, we don't take away from the culmination of the cross. The Catechism emphasizes this culmination of suffering on the cross as the central event of history when it says this, that so by his passion, as the only propitiatory sacrifice, he might redeem our body and soul from everlasting damnation and obtain for us the favor of God, righteousness, and eternal life. So for our justification, 
the remission of sins, the declaration of not guilty, and the declaration of righteousness over us, granting the right to eternal life, that was won by the obedience of Christ. That obedience had two aspects. In his active obedience, he kept the entire law of God perfectly, paying our debt because we have not kept the law. Then in his passive obedience, he rendered suffering obedience, culminating in the central event of the cross, taking away our sins. All of Christ's obedience led to this central event. The work of Christ as our high priest at the cross. I'll be in the book of Hebrews next, in chapter 7, where Paul, who I believe is the author of Hebrews, is proving that Christ holds a priesthood that is superior to the old Levitical priesthood. And I'll be in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 and 27. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So we can see two things here about the obedience of Christ. Where it's speaking of his superior high priesthood. First, Christ is holy. He's innocent, unstained or undefiled. And even though he was tempted during his earthly walk in all things like we are, he did not sin. In his active obedience, his complete fulfilling of the law, he never sinned against the law. He kept it perfectly. He would not have been qualified as our perfect high priest otherwise. And then the second thing about Christ's obedience that we can see here is that as verse 27 says, he offered up himself. This is the passive obedience of Christ, his suffering obedience. In the Old Testament, Priests offered sacrificial animals. But in the once-for-all sacrifice that puts an end to all further sacrifices, Christ was both priest and offering. He willingly went to the cross in his passive obedience, setting his face like flint to accomplish the work. You know, if we move forward in Hebrews a few chapters to chapter 12, we can see that the passive obedience of Christ required him to endure. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, which is where I'll be next, Paul tells us that we are to endure in our Christian lives, looking to the example of Christ. Here's what he says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In his passive obedience, Christ endured the cross. This passio magna, the great suffering, is something we can't imagine. He took all our sins on his shoulders to the cross. 
and endured all of the divine wrath we deserved, drinking the cup of divine wrath to the very bottom. As verse 2 says, he despised the shame. Part of his suffering was the shame of the cross, which was the most shameful form of execution that the Romans devised. Now, when it says he despised the shame, the Greek word translated despising can mean to consider something less important when compared to something else. Jesus compared the joy set before him to the shame of the cross and considered that shame to be less important than the reward for his passive obedience. So, so far, we've covered the basis for our justification, which is the obedience of Christ. Christ obeyed where Adam did not, and Christ obeyed where we did not. Now we need to look at this question. How is the benefit of what Christ did for us actually applied to us? The answer to that question is what Reformed doctrine refers to as the great exchange or the marvelous exchange. The modern theologian Michael Horton writes of the great exchange like this. He wrote, it speaks of a great exchange, Christ's righteousness for the sinner's unrighteousness, his obedience for our disobedience, his vindication for our condemnation, his life for our death. All of his riches are given to us, and all of our debts are borne by him. The righteousness that is counted to us is not our own righteousness, but the righteousness of another, our champion, Christ. This is what many have called an alien righteousness, an alien righteousness. In other words, the righteousness which makes us able to stand before a holy God is not our own self-made righteousness. It is a righteousness that belongs to another, to Christ. Christians, once they are saved, we do, yes, we do go on to do good works, but that's the step in the ordo salutis that comes a little bit later than this, and that's called sanctification, and it comes after this. Sanctification, that's a lifelong progression in Christ's likeness. It's gradual, and it's not perfect in this life. But in justification, which is where we're at now, the declaration of not guilty and the declaration of righteous, we don't bring our own righteousness. Instead, God grants us an alien righteousness, the righteousness of another, of Christ. This transferring of our sins to Christ at the cross and the transferring of his righteousness to us is called imputation, imputation. Our sins are imputed to Christ at the cross. And there at the cross, Christ paid our sin debt, our debt to suffer eternal, eternal death for our sins. Christ paid that for us at the cross the culmination of his passive obedience, the culmination of his suffering. Also, Christ's righteousness, his perfect fulfillment of the law in his active obedience is imputed to us or credited to us. Once we are justified, it is though we had not sinned and it is as though we had perfectly fulfilled the law. Imputation, it's really an accounting term. 
when Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, God reckons Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. Imputation means to reckon over to one's account. Our sins are reckoned to Christ's account at the cross, even though he did not sin. Christ's righteousness is attributed to us, reckoned to our account, even though we didn't gain it ourselves. The modern theologian Robert Raymond included the definitions of justification and imputation together in kind of one package statement. He wrote that there are ways that missionaries today can emulate the Apostle Paul, and one of those ways is this. We should proclaim free justification by grace alone through faith alone. This justification is God's holy objective, holy forensic judgment concerning the sinner's standing before the law. By this forensic judgment, God declares that the sinner is righteous in his sight because of the imputation of his sin to Christ, on which ground he is pardoned, and the imputation of Christ's perfect righteousness to him. Double imputation. Now let's highlight a few of Robert Raymond's words. First, as we've seen before, justification is forensic. It's a courtroom de declaration by the judge. Second, we who have saving faith have our standing before the law changed. Our legal standing before God's law now is that of righteousness before the law. Then Raymond goes on and says, this is because of two imputations, a double imputation. Our sin is imputed to Christ so that we're pardoned of our sins. The second imputation is that Christ's perfect righteousness is imputed to us. When God justifies the sinner at the moment of conversion, God clears our debts from our side of the ledger of the accounting books of justice. We owed a double debt to God, a double debt we could not pay. We owed a debt to fulfill the law, since the law says, do this and live. We also owed a debt to suffer eternal death because we broke the law. Because there's a double debt, there's a double imputation to clear the accounting books and satisfy God's justice. Our sins are imputed to Christ at the cross by his passive obedience, his obedience of suffering the wrath of God for us. Then the second imputation is the reckoning of Christ's perfect fulfillment of the law, his active obedience, his righteousness to us. What is this righteousness that is accounted to us by faith? The Puritan William Perkins described this righteousness as that which is called in Scripture the justice of God, which is sufficient to acquit a sinner at the bar of God's judgment. Once the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us, when we stand before the judge of all, we are acquitted. The judge's decree is not guilty and righteous before the law. Now to show the first part of this marvelous exchange, which is our sins imputed to Christ at the cross so that our sins are expiated, I'll read from 1 Peter. And I'll be in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. 
for a short statement of this imputation of our sins to Christ at the cross. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. Now in this passage, Peter affirms that Christ suffered once for sins. The New American Standard Version uses the word died. Christ died once for sins. His suffering and death on the cross, the culmination of his passive obedience, was a once-for-all sacrifice that takes the place of the everlasting death that was actually due to us. The fact that his death was a substitution for us is shown in that phrase, the righteous for the unrighteous. This is one half of the marvelous exchange. We had no righteousness of our own to offer. In fact, we had the opposite. We had only unrighteousness. The only way that we can have the righteousness we need to be declared not guilty is for our sins to be imputed to Christ, the righteous one. What is the result of this imputation, this exchange? The verse explains the purpose, that he might bring us to God. The only way we can be brought to a righteous God, which is a way of saying to have a relationship with God, is if we're declared righteous. Because of the obedience of the righteous one, and obedience even to death on the cross for our sins, we, his elect, his people, are led to God. One commentator draws a word picture of Christ taking his people by the hand and taking them safely across enemy territory to God. Another passage that speaks of the imputation of our sins to Christ on the cross and the result of this marvelous exchange is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So here, Paul states that there is once again a marvelous exchange. There is an exchange of sin and righteousness. For our sake, God imputed our sins to Christ, the sinless one, the one who knew no sin. Then the verse goes on with the other part of the exchange, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our righteousness by which we are acquitted at God's bar of justice is not any righteousness that we bring to the courtroom. It's an alien righteousness. The righteousness won by Christ, which is called in this verse the righteousness of God. The Heidelberg Catechism says this about the phrase, the righteousness of God. It says, as if I had fully accomplished all that obedience which Christ has accomplished for me. Romans chapter 5, verse 19, that's where I'll be next. Romans 5, 19, it also tells of the part of the marvelous exchange where Christ's act of obedience, his perfect fulfilling of the law is imputed to us. And here, 
Paul writes of the contrast between Adam and Christ. Romans 5.19 For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The one man in the garden, Adam, disobeyed. Adam's disobedience to the law was imputed to all of mankind. Christ, the second Adam, gives us a parallel and a contrast to the first Adam. By Christ's total obedience, his singular obedience, with the two aspects of his active and passive obedience, we are made righteous. Once again, as the Heidelberg Catechism makes clear, for the justified, it is as though we had fully accomplished all that obedience which Christ accomplished for us. One of my favorite passages in Scripture is in the book of Zechariah. When's the last time you were in the book of Zechariah? Chapter 3 of Zechariah, which is where I'll be next, gives us a picture of the imputed righteousness of Christ being applied. This passage describes a vision where the high priest at that time, Joshua, is pictured standing before the Lord with polluted garments and being attacked by the accusations of Satan. And I'll read from Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. The high priest at this time, Joshua, represented the people before the Lord. But instead of being portrayed in the vision wearing the beautiful robes of the high priest, the garments are filthy. The people are characterized by sin rather than beauty. Satan is accusing him, and by extension, accusing God's people. And it's not that the accusations are false. Joshua is there in the vision, not with robes of beauty, but garments bearing pollution. This is a courtroom scene with the prosecutor, Satan, along with the defendant, who is Joshua, representing God's people, and a mysterious figure, the angel of the Lord. This figure of the angel of the Lord appears in the Old Testament, and this figure is the pre-incarnate Christ. Now Joshua here, he seems to be in the worst situation with no escape. He stands there before the judge with the evidence of sin's pollution clothing him. But now, the best possible outcome begins to unfold the judge himself comes to Joshua's defense. The judge first rebukes Satan, stating that Joshua is a brand plucked from the fire. 
He is a burning stick about to be consumed by the flame, but rescued by the judge. Joshua and God's elect will receive mercy instead of strict justice. The Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ in the vision, then deals with Joshua's sad condition. The Lord commands that the polluted garments, polluted in the worst possible way, be removed from Joshua. The pre-incarnate Christ issues the command, remove the filthy garments from him. The next command is to put clean garments on Joshua. The pre-incarnate Christ, the angel of the Lord of this vision, then gives an explanation to Joshua that brings great joy. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. The pre-incarnate Christ is telling Joshua that he is accomplishing two actions to address Joshua's situation. First, the pre-incarnate Christ says, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. This is the first action we need before God. Our sins need to be taken away from us and placed on the shoulders of Christ at the cross. Since we as Christians belong to Christ, our sins are imputed to Christ and completely forgiven with perfect forgiveness. In a previous session, way back, we called this expiation. Our sins have been expiated or completely taken away. Then the second action that the pre-incarnate Christ commanded in the vision is to place clean garments on Joshua in place of the removed polluted garments. The angel of the Lord says, I will clothe you with pure vestments. It wouldn't have been appropriate for Joshua to have the polluted garments taken away and then just to be left standing before the Lord with no robes. In place of the, of the removed polluted robes, he's clothed with pure vestments. This is the second action. After the first action of our sins being expiated, we are then clothed in Christ's righteousness. We should notice that Joshua is completely passive in all of this. Joshua, he's not told to supply his own pure vestment. He isn't even told to dress himself in it. The pre-incarnate Christ says, I have taken your iniquity away from you. Christ then says, I will clothe you with pure vestments. Joshua had nothing to offer. Christ took the initiative. Christ was doing all the work. This vision is a picture of the twofold imputation, the marvelous exchange. Because of Christ's passive obedience, his obedience of suffering, our sins are imputed to Christ at the cross. Then because of Christ's active obedience, his complete fulfilling of the law in every detail, the righteousness that he earned by this is imputed to us. This finishes the section on justification. When we started this section, we started with the question that Bildad posed in the book of Job. How then can man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? We would have no hope of addressing this need in our own strength. Our champion, Christ, has addressed Adam's disobedience and our disobedience with his own obedience. Christ has addressed our unrighteousness by supplying his own righteousness. The doctrine of justification 
separates the truth from the false religions that assign the work of righteousness to sinful man. I'll once again quote the 17th century Puritan preacher Thomas Watson on the importance of the doctrine of justification. Justification is the very hinge and pillar of Christianity. An error about justification is dangerous like a defect in a foundation. Justification by Christ is a spring of the water of life. To have the poison of corrupt doctrine cast into this spring is damnable. And I'll close tonight with a quote from one of the sermons of Charles Spurgeon on justification. Christ says, I will be substitute for the rebel. The rebel shall take my place, I will take his. God consents to it. No earthly monarch could have power to consent to such a change, but the God of heaven had a right to do as he pleased. In his infinite mercy, he consented to the arrangement. Son of my love, said he, you must stand in the sinner's place. You must suffer what he ought to have suffered. You must be accounted guilty just as he was accounted guilty. And then I will look upon the sinner in another light. I will look at him as if he were Christ. I will accept him as if he were my only begotten son, full of grace and truth. I will give him a crown in heaven, and I will take him to my heart forever and ever. This is the way we are saved, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. Amen? Thank you for coming. Thank you, Steve.